I'm going to read the Bible for us now. Um, We are in Galatians chapter 5, verse 16 to not quite the end. 25. Getting the nod. Great. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things that you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalry, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I have warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law, and those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. This is the word of the Lord. Big step there. Um, guys, welcome to City Light. It is great to, to have you with us um, this morning. Uh, my name is Jacob, if we haven't met, and great to see new faces here as always. Um, I want to extend my welcome to Josh as if you're here exploring Christianity or um, uh, asking some big questions of life. We just do hope today is really, really helpful for you in that um, as we continue on in our series in the book of Galatians now. But how about we'll just pray before we jump into this together. Heavenly Father, we just ask as we look at these, uh, these words that were, that were penned um, thousands of years ago um, and, and done so uh, with you um, working through this author, Paul, we just ask that we would be right now just ready to engage with these words to consider what you have to say to us now, um, what you have to say to us about our lives, about our desires, about the way that we think, and that we might be able to shape ourselves around uh, who you call us to be. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, I really like podcasts. I don't really know what people did um, before they existed when they had to do menial tasks like washing the dishes or vacuuming the floor or driving. But it's just great to be able to um, have yourself and your mind distracted while you do stuff. And the type of podcast that I really like listening to in particular is when on a whole range of issues, though, but when you get kind of two people with very differing views, just kind of hashing it out over a long period of time and just thinking deeply about stuff. And so this week I thought of a podcast that I'd really like to listen to if you get the two people together, and that would be Abraham Lincoln and Billie Eilish. Now, on one hand, it would be great to see these guys do like a fashion podcast because they both have very distinctive styles. But uh, more significantly, I think what I'd be curious to hear them talk about is their differing views on the good life. Um, I think both... Billy Eilish and Abraham Lincoln, you can kind of hold up as epitomizing two very, very different ways that really, I guess, different generations think about the good life. For anyone here uh, who who doesn't know, Billy Eilish is a a 20-year-old pop sensation. She's an extraordinarily talented artist. And in many ways, she's one of the kind of pin-up girls for Gen Z culture. And last year, Billy Eilish appeared on the cover of Vogue magazine wearing a corset. And at the time, uh, she was interviewed by Vogue magazine, and she anticipated in that interview some of the potential critiques that that might raise. 
So how does wearing a corset fit with her being a role model for young women? How does wanting uh, your stomach to appear smaller fit with body positivity? How does dressing like a, a 50s you know, pin-up model um, promote feminism? And in anticipating some of these objections that she thought would be raised uh, by this, she, she kind of gave her, her thinking on it, and it was relatively clear, and this is what she said. She said, my thing is that I can do whatever I want. It's all about what makes you feel good. Now, I'm not going to wade in and step on a landmine about the kind of are corsets good or bad debate, because um, that seems like dangerous territory for me. So I'm, I'm not here to call her out. Um, I just think, but I think what, what happens there is it, it kind of captures a way of thinking that's not unique to her by any means, but is the kind of most common way of thinking for a whole generation. It's all about what makes you feel good. Lines like, be true to yourself, uh, follow your heart, if it feels good, do it. That, these are the, the catch cries of a generation. The idea that our desires, what we want, they're not to be questioned, they're to be fulfilled. And any attempt to kind of stop ourselves doing what we want is actually oppressive or it's, or it's repressive if we do it to ourselves. But that hasn't always been the case. Um, again, for any Gen Z people here who don't know who Abraham Lincoln was, he was the US president, he had the chin strap beard, the top hat, and he enjoyed going to the theater. But he was also the, the president <laughs> responsible for, for leading the Union through the Civil War and, um, and abolishing slavery in America. And he's regarded as one of the greatest presidents of all time, and I think rightly so, because he spent his life and his presidency um, not in pursuit of what would feel good, but in pursuit of what was good. He came from a, a generation who, at least publicly, by and large, um, put forward what, what really mattered, what was most valuable, wasn't feeling good, but was actually striving for some higher ordeal. What mattered most was what was good and right. And so he said things like, my concern is not whether God is on our side. My greatest concern is to be on God's side, for God is always right. He said, I'm not bound to win. I'm bound to be true. I'm not bound to succeed, but I'm bound to live up to what light I have. And in regards to you know, the place of feeling good, he said, when I do good, I feel good. When I do bad, I feel bad. And so it's this kind of flipping on its head. It's not about thinking first what feels good. It's trying to identify what is good, what is bad, and living in lines with those. And so I'd love to kind of hear these two just kind of hash it out because it's just such polar opposite ways of thinking. But I think these two different views on the good life are often things that we're wrestling with, our, with ourselves day in, day out. Because we find in ourselves that we, are, we often find at odds the, the things we want in the moment, the things that are going to feel good, and the things that we know ultimately to be good. And that's not a choice that's often easy to navigate. And this is really what Paul is diving into today in this portion of the book of Galatians. So a bit of a context as to where we're up to if you've missed some weeks or maybe it's your first time today. We've been looking at how the, the gospel of grace, that is the news that it's not about what you do, it's not about whether you have to kind of live up to a set of rules, but it's about God's generous, kind acceptance of us. Um, how, that it, how that knowledge brings freedom. And so last week, if you've got a Bible open in front of you and you kind of look back just that little bit before where we just started just now, in verse 1 of chapter 5, which is where we started last week, Paul writes, it is for freedom that Christ has set you free. That is, that you would have freedom from the slavery of living life under a series of restrictions and having to obey the law. And if you've spent any of your life in, a, in an overly religious context or an oppressive legalistic context where you've been made to feel like unless you do all of this, you're not good enough and you should feel shame, then you would appreciate the good news of this freedom. 
There's good news in not having to be restricted and confined by law. But as he begins to talk about freedom, what Paul did last week is he begins to explore what that freedom looks like because freedom isn't always completely clear-cut. So if you can imagine if you've got a person who uh, is a person who is uh, seriously addicted to some substance and who's been held against their will um, in a psychiatric hospital because they are um, of threat maybe to themselves or to of others, and they desperately want to get out. They feel like they're, they're trapped. They feel like they don't want to be there. And if they break out and, and, and manage to get away and return to a cycle of using and abusing, of waking up in pain and spending all of their time, effort, energy, money, trying to get that substance to numb that pain again and into entering that cycle, it's not an easy answer as to when, when was this person more free. What they've actually done is they've exchanged one type of kind of bondage, the bondage of having four walls around you and not being able to move physically, to a, to a different kind of slavery, which is this internal um, slavery as response to their own insatiable addiction. And so Paul's trying to warn against this kind of thing. He's been up till now in Galatians mostly talking about the slavery of the law. He's saying, you need, to, you need to be free of this. And there is freedom available that you would not be enslaved by a law. You would not be enslaved by a set of rules. But what he's warning is that don't exchange that slavery from another slavery. There's another sort of slavery, which is one that's not imposed on us by some external set of guidelines, but one that we can impose on ourselves by our own desires. And so where we finished last week was Paul saying in verse 13, you, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. And so Paul's central claim of this section is that every single person has a part of themselves that when fed and left to thrive, it's by its very nature enslaving. It actually robs us of freedom. And we need to recognize as followers of Jesus that we are set free from the law, but as well as that, there's another, there's another reality we have to contend with, which is that of our own warring desires. And so that brings us to this week's passage that we've just had read for us. And if you've got a Bible, I really do encourage you to keep it open so you can see the flow of the argument as we go through it. But this, today's part started, and it'll be on the screen as well, in verse 16. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other, to keep you doing the things you want to do. Now we're going to come shortly to the, um, some definitions of the flesh and the Spirit in a little bit. But the first thing, just to acknowledge in what Paul has written, is that when we are honest with ourselves and we look in ourselves, in a whole range of areas, we often find two conflicting desires. And Paul says that the fundamental divide in our desires is that between the flesh and the spirit. That it's possible to want two different things within. And that freedom, as he says, is to keep yourself from doing the things you want to do. And so that raises a question, doesn't it? How can you both be free and not be able to do the things you want to do? Isn't, according to you know, Billy Eilish's definition we talked about before, isn't freedom the ability to pursue what you want to do at all costs? And as an example of this, I was thinking, like, when I was writing my sermon this week, for a part of that time, I used an app on my computer called Freedom. Does anyone use the Freedom app? I came across it somewhere. I don't know. Not many people consider this an ad. I'm not getting paid for this, but it is a great app. And basically, it's a website blocker. You install it on your computer, um, and you can tell it the amount of time you want to do something productive. And so you say, look, okay, two hours. I don't want to be distracted. You press the button. And then from that moment forward, no matter what you do, 
You can't get into social media, shopping websites, news websites, YouTube. You're, just, you're blocked out. And when you forget that you've set that up and you go and you type in Facebook, up on the screen, you don't see Facebook, you just see this big green screen and it just says, you are free. Now, I think that's an ironic thing, <laughs> isn't it? Because on one level, I'm not free. I'm trying to get into Facebook and you're stopping me and you're telling me that I'm free. But I actually think what's going on here, and I think it's a clever to, to call this thing freedom, is that they've understood this reality, that the same reality that Paul's trying to put forward, which is we often want two things at once. And sometimes the things we want are the things that stop us from being truly free. Because on one hand, I, I do have two desires. On one hand, I want to get this sermon done. I want it to be done well. I want to do a good job so I'm not up here just feeling like I've hobbled this together last minute. I want it to be worthwhile your guys' time coming through the rain to sit under God's word. But also I want it to be done on time. I want it to be done so that come five o'clock I can just hang out with my family and on Saturday I can just do, do some fun stuff. So I've got this set of desires. I want to do a good job and I want it done on time. But I've got another set of desires, which I also really want, which is to browse the end of financial year sales, to read the Batuta Advocate, to spy on what you guys are doing on Instagram, watch videos on YouTube. And I really want all of that. Like That's a real desire as well. But I can't do both. They're mutually exclusive. But just because they're, they're mutually exclusive doesn't mean, well, they're kind of equal, are they? One of them is a, a better desire. We can kind of know that intuitively. There's a better and a worse option. Um, and the better option is to get to do the good job, get it done, and enjoy the weekend. But just because it's the better option doesn't mean that in the moment that's what I desire more. Because sometimes the desire to see what's happened in the world in the last 10 minutes is stronger than the desire to get the next paragraph finished. So it's my own desires that are stopping me from doing what I want. So I use this app, and it stops me doing what I want so that I can do what I want, so that I'm free to do what I want by not being able to do what I want. So hopefully that's clear. That clears that up. And that's the dynamic that Paul's tapping to into here, when he's talking about freedom and at the same time saying you can't do what you want. And so what he does next is he lays out these two different desires and how they kind of work. And the first one he puts forward is the flesh. And this is just the word he used to sum up one set of our internal desires. The, um, the kind of root word is this word sarks, which is in the Greek, it, it has multiple meanings, one of which is just literally the body. But at other times, it, it's talking about this internal kind of um, natural, even sinful way of thinking. And it's important to note that when he's talking about the flesh and the spirit, he's not distinguishing between um, just things that are kind of biological and physical versus things that are spiritual. So it's not, you know, the flesh, you want to eat food, you want to drink water, you want to sleep, and the, the spirit is you want to read your Bible and do these other things. That's not the distinction. The distinction is more about the ultimate motivation of the desires or even the goodness of the desires. And if you, some of you might have, a, have an NIV version that was published between 1984 and 2011, and yours won't even say flesh here, it'll just say sinful desires because, um, because some people have decided that's the most obvious way to read, um, to read this idea of the flesh. In Romans 7, when Paul's talking about the flesh, he calls them sinful passions. At another point in, in the book of Peter, when he describes the flesh, he, he also uses the synonym corrupt desires. So the flesh is picking up this element of, of sinfulness or, or corruption. And particularly around, I guess, the, the, the type of desires that are by their nature selfish and self-gratifying and self-pleasing. The, the desires that 
that have us think the thing that is most important is to please myself at any cost. It takes good desires and it turns them inward. Now this is a little bit abstract, um, and so what Paul does in this next section is he just spells it out with some concrete examples to help us be like, ah, oh, I see, that's what you're talking about. So if you look on in verse 19, he says, Now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. That's a bit of a random kind of list of things to, to throw together, but I think what Paul's doing as he goes through this list, he's showing how these set of desires can corrupt the way that you think and approach a whole different set of kind of life's main arenas. So the first three words he puts in there are sexual immorality, impurity, and sensuality, which are all words describing corrupt desires in regards to sexuality. So sexual immorality is talking literally about having sex with someone who's not your spouse. Impurity is the, is the word to talk about um, sexual acts that are improper. And sensuality, or in other versions you might find the word debauchery, is talking about um, indulgent, over-the-top, extreme, self-pleasing sexual activity. And the reason that these are maybe at the beginning, um, you might think on first, you know, and maybe this is like the background of maybe Christianity you've come through, well, they're up front because sexual sin is worse than any other sin. But that's not, what, that's not the reason they're up front because we know from whole other parts of the Bible that it's not, it's not uniquely sinful. But the reason I think that these are listed first is because we're talking about desires and sexual desire is extremely powerful. And it's powerful because God made us this way. God made us sexual beings and sexual desire is good. But when these good sexual desires are corrupted, when, when, sexual, when sexuality goes from uh, asking how can this desire be expressed rightly in my circumstance at this time under God to simply asking the question, what can I do to make myself feel good now? It becomes damaging. And people get used or people get hurt or addictions form. And we don't have to think very far to think of examples of this where, where, where corrupt desires in this arena of sexuality in the pursuit of self-gratification at all costs have hurt people and have ruined relationships or have even led people to do things that are criminal or just to play out sexual desires in shame and secret and darkness. So that's one kind of set of, of, um, of, of fleshly desires infiltrating our lives. The second two that exist is idolatry and sorcery, which um, may be a bit less kind of common uh, for, for Sydney at the moment, but in the, in the world, these are still extremely common things. Again, it's taking a good desire, that is to engage with the spiritual, to engage with the transcendent, to have an object of worship outside of ourselves that we would look to, but again, corrupted and turned inward. The need to have a, a physical object, a statue at your own disposal that you can control, that that would be the center of your worship is a corruption. Or the idea of somehow through some attempt of kind of manipulating the supernatural natural world through magic reveals that we've got a deep desire to self-serve, that these are inward, these are, are working this, this good desire to have something outside to our own end. Again, he moves on to maybe some things that are more common. And if, look, if sorcery is a bigger deal for you, and I've missed that, um, right on your slips, we can spend more time on sorcery in the future. But, um, but we've got a few other ones coming up here. It says enmity, strife, 
jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions. And these are all impacts of the, the, these fleshly desires and relationships. The idea that you would just want what someone else has in envy and jealousy, to, to take for yourself what someone else has which is good. It's the inability to, to share and to be, to be generous and to walk alongside others because we care about them, not just ourselves. It's the impulse to, to striking back and retaliating and getting revenge as opposed to being able to be forgiving. It's, us, it's having a, an us-them mindset about things, saying that others are the problem and I am right. And Paul puts all this down to, again, the, the tendencies of the flesh to corrupt sinful desires. He then ends with drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. And, and orgies here is not talking about sexual or- orgies. It's more talking about like you know drinking parties. But again, it's, it's indulgent. It's, it's, a, it's appealing to our sensual desires and wanting, wanting to have those satisfied by, by, by feasting, by drinking, by indulging. And, and, and again, it's, it's looking inward. It's taking good desires and making them about, what can I do to make me feel good now? That's the flesh. And that's what Paul's saying. He's saying all of us have this. All of us have a tendency for our desires to lead us not in a good direction, but to lead us inward. To have appetites that lead towards the self that are by nature enslaving and controlling. But then Paul goes on to list this other set of internal desires that, that we have, which is the spirit. And again, he's not distinguishing between like earthly things and like supernatural things because these are both parts of our, of our soul and just the different directions in which they are drawn. Because he's saying that part of our soul is renewed by the Spirit. That is, in Christianity, we, we understand that God is living in his people. That in the gospel, we have access to this uh, amazing resource which is God deciding to set up his home in us and to begin a work of changing us and reforming and rebuilding our desires. And that unlike our own sinful desires, which are turned inward, look at what Paul writes about the Spirit. In verse 22, he says, The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. So love, selflessly looking not inwards but outwards to the needs of others. Joy, which is not just a, a matter of getting... Um, pleasure here and now, but having a deeper delight in something outside of ourselves. Peace, which is not the anxiety of saying, how can I look after me? Am I going to have my needs met? But a contentment and a trust. Patience, again, just by definition, is the the willingness to forego some immediate gratification or even to go through patiently through suffering or enduring some form of hardship. Kindness is, again, it's an outward word. It's practical love, acts of love towards another. Goodness, which is aligning ourselves with not something within, but some external reality that what is actually good out there. Faithfulness, being someone who follows through with our word, not just kind of knocked over by what we feel in the moment. Gentleness, not being given into bouts of anger and revenge and self-control, the word that I think sums it all up. It's the ability to say no to yourself. And it's this completely different set to what the flesh puts forward. Where our sinful desires say, I want this and I'm going to go and get it. The Spirit teaches us to look higher and to aim higher and to even say no to the desires that we find at the end that seek to drag us down. It's a better list. Um, for most people, it's kind of, as you read the list, it's a no-brainer as to which one you want to aspire to. Do you want to be an angry, resentful, drunk, debaucherous sorcerer, um, which sounds like a, a Warcraft character or something? <laughs> or do you want to be 
a kind, patient, steadfast, faithful, joyful, loving person. And it's kind of obvious which one you want. But what's not obvious is to how to make that a reality. It's not that easy, is it? Proverbs 16.32 says, The one who conquers themselves is better than the one who conquers a city. And I think that just shows that conquering your own self and your own desires is no small feat. It's not just something you can do in an afternoon. It's, it's, it's impressive. It's almost as impressive as taking down a city. Our desires aren't just like hot tap, cold tap. You can just kind of turn them off and on and, and mix it your own at, you know, in a moment. But what Paul does in this passage, he does chart a path to be someone who is driven by the desires of the Spirit. There's this Native American fable um, that kind of makes its way into various aspects of kind of pop culture and movies and books. So you may have heard this in kind of some form before, where a, a grandfather says to his grandson that inside every person there are two wolves warring. One is goodness and light, the other is darkness and evil. Which one wins? And the grandson kind of answered the question, and so the grandfather turns to him and says, whichever one you feed. And there's a bit of this kind of just, just wisdom that we kind of understand as to how we can influence our desires that is captured in what Paul has to say next. But I think he's actually going to go more than that, more to say that we need to focus on one or the other. He's going to actually give us the resources to do it. And so he says there are two things, to crucify the flesh and to walk in the spirit. Look at verse 24 and 25. It says, And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. So the first thing that Paul says there is that those who belong to Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Now it's interesting to note that when Paul talks about this, he's, he's talking past tense. Um, another, if you back, look back in that first verse, in verse 16 we looked at, he talks kind of future test future tense, which is, you will not gratify. But here he's talking past tense. He's talking about something that's already happened that a follower of Jesus, someone who is in Jesus, can identify with. Those who belong to Jesus have crucified the flesh. And one of the things that obviously is drawn to mind here is something we've already looked at in Galatians, back in chapter 2, verse 20, which I'll read for you to come on the screen as well. This is only a couple of pages earlier in, in, in your Bibles, um, in the same letter where Paul writes, I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. This is the first, I guess, piece of power that we can tap into in understanding um, how we can be a person who um, can uh, say no to our fleshly desires. And that is when Jesus died on the cross physically, he also took with him supernaturally a piece of everyone who is in him. That our, that our default nature, our default desires, and the power that they hold over us that we cannot resist are taken to the cross with him. They are put to death. And that when Jesus died, a part of us died too. This enslaving piece of our souls is, is dealt a mortal blow. That it loses its power. So that's one of the bits of scripture that this, this idea brings to mind in this past tense. But I think it also brings to, brings to mind another, another key part of Jesus' teaching. And this isn't something that happens in Jesus' death. But this is something that happens in every person who makes a decision to follow Jesus. And it's in Luke 9.23, where Jesus says, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. And that is, the call to follow Jesus 
is the call to deny an aspect of yourself. And in Jesus' words, it's to take up your own cross. That is, it's to take yourself and to crucify yourself. To put to death a part of yourself. And, and he says to do it daily. It's a daily decision to say that the desires I have, there is some of them that I'm going to say no to. That I'm going I'm to reject. I'm going to say no to that in, so I can say yes to something else. This isn't some like, act of like, just whipping yourself or beating yourself up or making you suffer for kind of no reason. But in a lot of ways, it's no less controversial. This isn't a, a popular piece of Jesus' teaching, the, the teaching to deny yourself. But what Paul is saying is that is what someone who belongs to Jesus has done. They've, they've, they've said and they've, they've made a decision as to their life that they're not going to make their own desires the most important thing. You're crucified with Christ, and the living out of that is daily taking up your cross. So as a follower of Jesus who's renounced this part of himself, we want to... We Live that out, I guess, is, is the way to think about it. Which is when we see these desires arise, to, to seek to, to kill them and to starve them. And one of the practices that, that Christians have done over the, the centuries to kind of aid them in this is fasting. That's going you know, a period of time, like going a day or so without food, uh, which isn't a super common practice now, but it always, you know, up to not too long ago it has been. And one of the things that happens in fasting, it's training yourself to recognize that our desires aren't the most important thing. They're not the things that control us and consume us. It's not that food is bad or desiring food is bad, but it's for a time practicing going without one desire to strengthen, our, to strengthen another one. To remind ourselves that not every desire needs to be push, pursued. So when the, the fleshy desire to lust or to delve into anger or to binge or whatever it might be, we've actually had some practice in saying, look, I don't actually have to say yes to this. I actually have some sense of self-control, and that's something that grows over time. So that's one practice to maybe think about in, in light of this. But that's only half of what Paul says about crucifying the flesh. And so that's not where I want to end. I want to end where Paul ends, which is what he says three times in this passage, which is that we are called to walk in the Spirit, to keep in step with the Spirit. And I think this is the ultimate key to understand how we can be people who are growing in this one set of desires. Because here's the thing, on our own, we really are powerless to conquer our desires. When temptation comes along, when a, when a, when a tendency comes up, whether it's a, you know, a full-blown addiction or whether it's just something we've just trained ourselves over the years to say yes to, comes along, simple willpower will not get you very far. Our main, our main response is to say, I, I can just do this, I'm just going to grit my teeth, I'm going to say no. But in the moment, that's not, that's not easy to do. To really change, we need help from the outside. And that's why programs like Alcoholics Anonymous and you know, other 12-step you know, programs seem to be successful in helping people break addictions where on their own, trying alone for years, they've been unable to do so. And so much of it is recognizing that we can't do it alone. Even the, the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous, the first one is to admit we're powerless. To step two is to ask for help from a higher power. I think uh, one, three, four, or five is to confess your sins to others. It's, it's inviting us into recognizing that we need help. And so if, if for you, these kind of, as you're thinking about desires, what's coming to mind for you is actually an addiction that you've just tried so, so hard to, to break and to stop and you've been unable to do it. We want to invite you to reach out to us. We want to help you in this to at least be people you can talk to, but even to point you in, in, in the direction of more help because we can't do this alone. But one resource that every Christian has at their disposal is the Holy Spirit. That God himself is living within us. 
that he's there and that he has the power to change and to overcome where we don't. And so the key to overcoming the self isn't just to try harder. And that's not, if please don't go away saying, I just need to try harder. I just need to kind of wake up to this and just do better. Because the only thing that's powerful enough to dislodge our desires towards sin is for an even greater desire to take hold. For the desire of the Spirit to become so apparent and real for us that we can't help but follow through on that desire. Thomas Chalmers, who's an old Puritan writer, wrote a piece called The Expulsive Power of a New Affection, which I think is just so helpful in in crystallizing this. And he's talking about this, this issue specifically. And he says, There are two ways in which a practical moralist may attempt to to displace from the human heart its love for the world, either by a demonstration of the world's vanity, so that the heart shall be prevailed upon simply to withdraw its regard from an object that is not worthy of it, or by setting forth another object, even God, as more worthy of its attachment, so that the heart shall be prevailed upon not to resign an old affection which shall have nothing to succeed it, but to exchange an old affection for a new one. From the constitution of our nature, the former method is altogether incompetent and ineffectual, and the latter method will alone suffice for the rescue and recovery of the heart from the wrong affection that domineers over it. I wish I could write as well as he, he can. Um, amazing, amazing just piece of writing there. But what he's saying is the fight against sin isn't won by just beating ourselves up and being like, you idiot, you shouldn't want that. You should, you, you're doing this again, you, again and again and again. It's not just from setting yourself in your own mind, your own brokenness and your own evil. What he says is, and what Paul is saying here, is that the key is to, by the Spirit, desire what the Spirit desires, which is Jesus, which is God in his glory, which is the goodness and beauty of the God who made us and knows us and loves us, who sent his son into the world to die for us, to have a piece of that vision and the invitation that he has put forward to be his children, to be made like him, to enjoy him for eternity. That is what we should ultimately desire. And we don't just have to kind of force ourselves to desire that because we've got the spirit living within us that Paul is saying just just join him in his work. Be with him. Allow him to transform you and to change you. That you might over the, the course of your life, be growing in one set of desires to the diminishment of another. It's a lifelong journey. He, he who conquers his own soul is greater than he who takes a city. This is, this is what we should be striving towards. But not striving towards anxiously and frustratedly or, or with a sense of shame, but with a sense of joy that God has set up his residence in us. So I want to encourage you this week to to recognize that the fight against sin isn't going to be won just in that moment when the desire arises, but it's going to be won in the mornings as you spend time with God. It's going to be spent, it's going to be won on Tuesday or Wednesday night when you get out of an exhausting rough day and you go along to your city-like community and you open God's word, you remind each other of, of the truth and what you love and you fix your eyes on Jesus so that come Thursday or Friday or Saturday when that temptation arises that you've set before yourself by the Spirit's power an even better thing something to desire. It's going to be one, not here just listening to me give a sermon right now, but it's going to be one in a minute or two when the band comes back up and we sing of the goodness of God. That we won't just be waiting to get our kids and beat the rain and get in the car and get home, but that we would be reminding ourselves in the words that we sing and bringing our hearts into line with the thing that we ought desire above all else. 
the thing that the Spirit in us desires above all else, which is the glory of God and what He has done for us. So in a minute, I'm going to pray, and then I'm going to invite you, as we, when we do stand, to, to, to sing and to sing in a sense that what we are singing about is our greatest desire and our greatest hope. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just want to ask that as we, um, as we reflect on ourselves, and no doubt as we reflect in, in, our, in our failings and as we reflect on the parts of us that do not desire what is good and what we know is right, but just are just so eager to please ourselves. We just thank you that our sin has been crucified with you, that it is done and, our, and, and all the evil and impurity within us has been taken to the cross. We thank you for the opportunity to know that uh, uh, there is a good and proper and great life in you that comes at the expense of denying ourselves, but in doing so we gain life. And we just ask that we would be people who, by the Spirit's power, can be changed in our desires, that we can be transformed to want you above all else, that the other things we would desire in the, in the, in the corrupt, in corrupted ways towards um, manipulating others or this world or the things that are disposal to our own end would be would be dumbed down. That we would have just a desire for you that impacts the way that we love, the way that we experience joy and peace and hope and gentleness and kindness and patience. We might be changed by you. Amen.